Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This week on the California Report magazine, what do you know about Jerry Brown? That he was governor of California for four terms? He has become the most curious political figure in American politics. That he ran for president three times? I'm here in Philadelphia to stand as a candidate for the president of the United States. How about that he was California's secretary of state and the mayor of Oakland? Who ever heard of a politician seeking lower office? Well, who ever heard of a politician like Jerry Brown? Maybe you know he dated Linda Ronstadt? Brown and Ronstadt seem to represent the ultimate interaction between politics and show business. Well, besides those well-known facts, there's more to the story. A new podcast from KQED called The Political Mind of Jerry Brown looks at Brown's complex evolution from the Jesuit priesthood to the governor's mansion. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. I'm Sasha Coca, and that's today on the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Joining me to talk about their new podcast, The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, is host Scott Schaefer, who is also the former host of our show, The California Report, this program. Hi, Scott. Hey, Sasha. And producer Guy Marzarati. Hi, Guy. Hey. So before we dig deep into the story of Jerry Brown, tell me a little bit about how this whole idea came about of chronicling his story. Sure. So it was, uh, you know, late 2018, and he was getting ready, Jerry Brown, to leave the governor's office. And I just thought... Somebody ought to do an oral history with this guy. He has such an extraordinary story, the trajectory of his life, son of a governor, entered the seminary, got into politics, governor at age 36, and the whole story. I thought, we have to do that. But I wanted to partner with somebody, so I reached out to the Bancroft Library. They said yes, like immediately, and then the governor said he would do it. I don't think he knew exactly what he was saying yes to. We actually met with him up in Sacramento a few weeks before we sat down to start these interviews. And and it's interesting, too, because his father did something similar with the Bancroft. And uh, he wanted to know, well, how many hours did my father talk to you? And they said, well, it was about 30 hours. And we ended up talking to him for 40. And I think for sure it was like one yet one last bit of competitive nature between uh, Jerry Brown and his father, Pat Brown. So you went to his ranch in Calusa, spent a lot of time with him. Tell me about that first day, that first interview. Yeah, well, we didn't really know what to expect. We'd never been to the ranch before. It was Guy Marzarati and I and Rob Spade, our engineer. And I remember it had been raining, and so it was quite wet. And he lives on this beautiful, sprawling land that uh, his great-grandfather had lived on. There's mountains there and just a lot of open space and olive trees. 
And the first thing, we drove up into this little horseshoe driveway, and the dogs came running out. And it was it was very wet. It was So Callie and Calusa were, like, literally jumping on the side of the car. For a while, I had paw prints up and down the side of the car. Uh, and uh, by the time we got in to, to uh, talk to the governor, we were quite, you know, covered in mud. Uh, but we sat down, and it was, it was a little bit uh, difficult at first, I have to say. He was a little hard to get to warm up to the, to the project. Well, let's talk about the beginning of you, yeah. uh, which is, uh, I think, April 7th, 1938. Yeah, I have no recollection of that. <laughs> so how did you get him to warm up? <laughs> well, you know, uh, and Guy Marzorati can say more about this, but he just was resistant to talking about his childhood. And I think it's partly because he didn't feel it was that interesting. Um, it's also because he was really took great pains to suggest that he just had a typical childhood. He was growing up in the, you know, born in the late 30s, grew up during the Depression, World War II, and he wanted to portray his life as no different from any other kid living on Magellan Avenue in San Francisco in the 40s, even though his father was the district attorney of San Francisco, even though his dad was a rising star in the Democratic Party. Uh, and he just really wanted to suggest that, hey, you know, I didn't really have it any different. Life was different than Parents weren't as involved, you know, with their kids' lives. I mean, he kind of suggested that his dad had no idea that he was doing the debate team or any of the other, you know, extracurricular activities he was involved in. What about political talk at the dinner table? Nope. I don't ever remember talking to me about it or talking to my sisters. You know, should I run girls? This wasn't a political science course. And that resistance, you know, to talking about his childhood, we realized as time went by, it wasn't just his childhood that he was resistant. And it was more about how he questioned everything. So you can't even formulate that question in, in a way that I can make use of it. But I get and the, often yeah. critiques what you're asking before answering it. Well, first of all, I don't think that question is entirely clear. And don't even bother asking him what people are like. What are people like? You know, if you ask me, what are you like? I'd be hard-pressed to give you an answer. And what was it like to have Jerry Brown fire back at you like that? You know, I totally expected it because, you know, he has that reputation of being so argumentative about things. It was, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I think some of the Others who were with us from the Bancroft Library, for example, were a little taken aback by it and took it a little personally. To me, he's testing you. You know, he wants to have that exchange. He doesn't want you to roll over and let him say what he's going to say. And so it was good. To, to, and some of the best, I think, parts of the podcast are those interchanges between, you know, myself and the governor. I will say one of the things that we took away from those early sessions was just the separation he felt from his father's political rise. It was almost as if they were living under one roof but operating in, in two different worlds. In 1950, Pat Brown vaulted from being San Francisco district attorney to becoming attorney general of California. The greatest satisfaction that I think I've had of all has been working in behalf of all the people of this state. But back then, young Jerry didn't share his dad's political ambitions. Well, I don't think I was really engaged in politics. And yet, he was surrounded by it. He met Adelaide Stevenson, a Democrat who was running for president against Dwight Eisenhower. I liked hearing him speak. I watched his convention speech in 1952. I thought it was very exciting. It is the party of no one because it is the party of everyone. Jerry was in Catholic school at the time. But there was no campaign for class president, no organizing a young Democrats club. And as his dad told UC Berkeley oral historians, his only son had no aspirations to follow in his father's footsteps. He wasn't too interested in politics at any right. time. He, uh, he wanted to be a priest. That's right. 
Jerry Brown wanted to be a priest. And according to his dad, he hoped to go straight from St. Ignatius High School into the seminary. At 17, he called me and said, I want to be, and this was on his birthday, he said, I'd like to enter the Jesuit order at Los Gatos. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you my consent. I want you to wait for another year. He was only 17. As Jerry puts it, he rebelled by what he called a greater conformity, doubling down on his interest in the historical perspectives that Jesuits studied. The innovation was more mysterious, just a, a wider horizon in my mind. So in the summer of 19... 19- Spoiler alert, Jerry Brown did not become a Jesuit priest. Uh, he left the seminary, but in many ways, I think the seminary never really left him. To begin with, you know, we the series is called The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. We could have made a completely different series from these interviews, you know, the Jerry Brown's book club or the spirituality <laughs> or the intellect of Jerry Brown. I mean, Thoughts on the church. He spent, he spent so much time talking about these different philosophies and, and spirituality. Um, and I think there's some things that you can even carry forward and see him carry forward into his political career, maybe starting with his frugality. Yeah, we got a little bit of a taste of that um, when we were up there at the ranch. Um, I would say this gingerly. Uh, he offered us water. He offered us coffee, I think maybe once or twice with cream. Um, we uh, ended up bringing him food after a while. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just felt like, okay, well, there's some almonds, you know, for sale down there at Granzella's uh, in Williams. We'll bring him some of those things. But, you know, he is very, very frugal. He, he, has, he likes living simply. He thinks people have too much stuff. But as we hear in the podcast, he was also very aware of the power of the symbol of frugality. I was very aware of the skepticism and disdain for politicians. I didn't want to feed that. One of his first moves as governor, and one that would come to define his image as frugal and just plain different from other politicians, was to ditch the governor's limousine. The uh, credibility of government was low, and I didn't want to project the arrogance of power. And a big limousine with one guy in the back seems excessive to me. It's just the iconography is, is not good. What Brown ended up with was a blue Plymouth. He sold Ronald Reagan's Cadillac limousine and uses a 74 Plymouth. I said, just take whatever car. I didn't know it was going to be blue. I didn't pick the blue car. Just pick whatever car is in the carpool. Brown also refused to live in the governor's mansion Reagan had built out in an upscale, leafy suburb of Sacramento. To furnish it and operate it over four years would be millions of dollars. So that wasn't within the spirit of things. So there was really no choice. An apartment made sense. The Spartan apartment, the Blue Plymouth. Message, I'm not your typical politician. Now, the average Californian probably won't notice a bill or an executive order signed by a governor, but these symbols of austerity, well, they broke through. He rejects ceremonial and conventional behavior expected from governmental leaders. He gives few speeches. He sends back all the perks and gifts that pour into a governor's office, even the lifetime pass to Disneyland that goes with the job. So to what extent was it just that's you, that's who you were versus, you know, being, it sounds like you were somewhat aware. I mean, you couldn't. No, we mean unaware. I've been running for governor four times. I'm unaware of the consequences of political gestures and moves. Well, that's a, that, to state that proposition is to refute it. No, I said you weren't, but I think I, said, I was going to say you weren't, you weren't unaware. It was a double negative. Well, you were implying that this was unusual to be aware. The most politicians run around totally unaware of the consequences and what people are thinking, right? Wrong. 
because that's another kind. And maybe in your business, you're not aware, but I doubt that. So I think that's a silly question. That's giving me PTSD to listen back to that. <laughs> a lot of interchanges like that with him. You know, one of the things that struck me about his frugality that you explore in the podcast is, you know, a lot of people think Bernie Sanders was the guy who came up with this idea of small donor contributions. Several times when Jerry Brown was a candidate for different offices, he put in limits, like 100 bucks as a maximum contribution. I mean, he did a lot of these politically groundbreaking things that you know, the younger generations in California may not remember. Yeah. And in fact, his very first run for office, which was for secretary of state, a statewide office, he made money and politics a big issue. He was going to run as the reformer, even though he was the son of the governor. Uh, you know, he was really an insider, but he ran as an outsider. And yeah, even the $100 limit, uh, which he made part of one of his campaigns, was very thought through. He wanted to make it 250 and somebody who worked with him said, Jerry, no, that's too much. Let's make it 100. So it really, even that, it was really thought through. And it was also, you know, whether it was issues about balancing the budget or environmental issues, he was often ahead of his time on specific issues that other candidates would pick up and run to victory in subsequent years. It never seemed when he was running for president, though, that he could really package it all together. He ran three times. Each had different problems. The first time he got in too late. The second time he really didn't have a message. And the third time he was running up against Bill Clinton. I think what we found out when we talked to him about that first run in 1976 was the genesis of it really was he had been governor for a year. He kind of looked around the state on things that he still had to work on and thought, really, there's not that much left to do on the state government. Why don't I try to take this national? Brown felt he needed a bigger platform. You know, like the stage of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And in his typical go-it-alone fashion, he made the announcement out of the blue. Did he even warn his chief of staff, Gray Davis? No, no, I had no idea he was going to do this. It was a Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock in an era when there's no internet, no email, no cell phones. Brown told Davis to summon the reporters covering the Capitol. So somehow the conversation got into this mode where they say, well, hypothetically, Governor, if you were going to run for president, how would you do it? When would you do it? And then one of them said, well, are you going to run? And he says, I guess I am. So now it's about quarter of five on a Friday afternoon, and all of a sudden the governor is announced, and we don't have one staffer or anyone geared up. There was no national campaign structure, no roadmap to win the nomination. And even worse, Brown's announcement came in March. By the time he started his campaign, four months of primaries were already over. Needing a national campaign chair, Brown called on San Francisco Democrat Leo McCarthy, who was then Speaker of the State Assembly. And McCarthy turned to someone he thought might be able to help. My name is Nancy Pelosi. I'm the Speaker of the House. My political relationship with Jerry Brown began in 1976. In 1976, Nancy Pelosi was a Democratic Party activist, just starting her political career. I said, the California primary is in June. By June, we'll have a presidential nominee. If Jerry doesn't run sooner, there's no way that he can be that nominee. But Pelosi knew that the primary rules allowed Brown to get on the ballot in her home state of Maryland. So I said, I think it would be great if Jerry came to Maryland and ran. My father was mayor. My brother was mayor. We had friends with grassroots organizations. So 3,000 miles from California, Jerry Brown hit the campaign trail. I hope you'll vote for me. I intend to. You do. Thank you very much. He still had his view of political limits, even for the president. A lot of the time is red tape. 
clinking champagne glasses, uh, walking in the Rose Garden, uh, meeting with all your experts. So what does the president do? He has a chance to make a few decisions. Those few decisions, particularly on the environment, is where Brown thought he alone could make a difference. Now planet, spaceship Earth, we're all going through the universe together, taken out of the same well, the same ozone layer, and we've got to protect it. Comments like those earned Brown the nickname Governor Moonbeam. He was young, he was fresh, he was new, new and free of other, shall we say, past uh, perceptions of how things should be. Pelosi recalls a rally at the University of Maryland where students were eating up Brown's message. A gym was packed and jammed. People were hanging from the rafters practically, and overcrowded people outside, the rest of it. And uh, Jerry Brown got out there and he made this great speech on the environment. Oh, they were cheering and roaring and cheering. And then he said, um, now when you leave here, I want you to go home and place a brick in the water tank of your toilet. Limit the amount of water that a toilet can consume. So that you don't waste so much water. From seven gallons per flush to three and a half gallons. That's the next and the crowd went crazy. They roared, roared, roared. And my brother said, I think I'm a dinosaur in politics when somebody gets this raging standing ovation for putting a brick in the toilet. But anyway, he was new and fresh and really very well received. And he won. But we'll have more on that in a minute. You're listening to the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Today we're talking with Scott Schaefer and Guy Marzarati about their new podcast, The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. They're digging into the legacy of a man who was truly a California original and the longest serving governor in California history. So Jerry Brown won that primary in Maryland, but he never did win as president, although he tried several times. But it seems like no matter what office he was running for, he was always trying to bring these utopian ideals into it, whether it was low-flow toilets or grassroots organizing for voter registration. Yeah, that was very much part of his image. And, you know, now the environmental policies he embraced at that time, there are things that we take now for granted, for example, diversity on the courts. You know, now you expect governors and presidents to appoint different kinds of people to the bench. No one was doing that when Jerry Brown was governor the first time, and yet he appointed the first female chief justice. He appointed the first openly LGBT judge. You know, the things that he pioneered uh, really became very mainstream in part because they were, you know, they were good ideas and he was ahead of his time. You know, some people may forget that after Jerry Brown was governor the first time around, he actually went on to become the mayor of Oakland. And that was a pretty controversial tenure because some people say his ideas about market rate housing are responsible for what we see as gentrification today and actually the outflight of so many African-Americans from Oakland. You know, he really is unapologetic about those eight years that he spent. And I think one thing that you can say with certainty is he delivered on all his promises. He made no bones about it when he was running for mayor. His goal was to bring more people downtown, to focus on market rate development. He thought, if I can, if, you know, kind of feel the dreams, if I build it, they will come. If I'm able to build housing downtown, the movie theaters, the shops, the restaurants will follow. And if you go to Uptown Oakland today, that's a reality. I think that there is a downside to that. And that is a lot of longtime Oakland residents were forced out. People, you know, talk about the genesis of gentrification in Oakland dating back to that time of development under Jerry Brown. He was really unapologetic about it in these interviews. I would say one thing that 
Jerry Brown concludes from all this is he was still very popular and he still won two elections in Oakland by huge margins. And I think kind of that's how he concluded uh, the interview portions when we're talking about Oakland. He said, you know, you can say whatever you want, but at the end of the day, the voters were with me. By a huge amount, liked what I was doing and continue to like it. Brown won twice in landslide victories, popularity matched by few mayors in the city's recent history, and the solid one-third of Oakland voters who opposed his approach. Someone might say, what the third thinks is really what the right path is. Well, that might be, that'd be a good course to teach at uh, the local junior college, but it's not a viable governing roadmap. After his eight years in Oakland, Brown's political education was nearly complete. He had taken the opposite path of most politicians. Who ever heard of a politician seeking lower office? Well, who ever heard of a politician like Jerry Brown? The man He'd gone from the most powerful position in California down to municipal government and governed with a hands-on approach of direct action. Now, he was ready to go back to Sacramento. So Brown has had his fair share of critics over the years. When you guys talked to him, was he open about any of his regrets? I do think you hear him being reflective on a lot of decisions he made in the governor's office, but the reflections are always political calculations. I should have done this differently on Prop 13 by putting a ballot measure to counteract it. I should have done this differently on MedFly so the Reagan administration didn't get at me first in a political move. So I think the reflections that you hear and you know, coincidentally, if you go and listen to Pat Brown's oral history, it's very emotive. And the reflections are, I felt so bad after making this decision. I really was depressed. Jerry Brown's reflections are, oh, you know, I was wasn't quick to the draw politically. I mean, this is a guy who was so reluctant to take big money the first time around, yet the second time around, and you guys delve into this, I mean, he is taking big money from big oil and other big corporations. Yeah, and he's very unapologetic about that as well. And, you know, that is an evolution for him. Uh, you know, he did run the first time promising to get, if not get money out of politics, at least have there be more transparency, more reporting, more, which there was. I mean, he did get that done as Secretary of State. But I think he also came to be very practical and pragmatic that, look, if you want to get a tax increase on the ballot passed statewide, you need to get buy-in from business interests. And if oil companies want to give you a donation to help get a tax increase on the wealthy passed, as he did in Prop 30, uh, I'll take the money. And he also took a lot of flack when he made pretty deep cuts to social services. When he was trying to be fiscally responsible and balance the budget, he alienated a lot of his, what could have been his core base by making cuts to the elderly and education and social services. Right. But I think that was also kind of the political appeal of Jerry Brown coming back to the governor's office was that it didn't feel like he owed anybody anything. He wasn't beholden to the liberal base or to the Democrats already in Sacramento. He kind of had his own political juice, shall we say. And he arrived back in the Capitol realizing that the state had to make really severe cuts. And he felt like, look, I, I, there's no other office I'm running for after this. Although we should say he told us later he did think about offices after the governor's office. <laughs> Probably still thinking about but, it. But at the time, he was thinking, I can take this on. I can, as we called the episode, think for myself. You guys are unfolding this story over some eight episodes in your podcast. Was there anything that was off limits when it came to asking questions of Jerry Brown? No, you know, like, I think this 
is so different than so many interviews that you do, A, just for the length of it. I mean, this was over 40 hours that we were up in Calusa having these conversations. Never once did an aide or anyone jump in and say, oh, governor, I think you better to leave that off the record, better not to answer that. He was really open. And the fact is, we did this in partnership with the Bancroft Library as an oral history. The agreement was most people who have an oral history done to them, the subjects can edit it. But under this agreement, we were able to take these interviews and untouched create this series. And he didn't really have any oversight of it. I think that's rare. I think most politicians, especially if, if it's something relating to their legacy, want to have control over it. So, I, you know, I'd say there's there wasn't really anything where he said, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, although, Scott, there were some things where he may have not felt as comfortable taking Yeah, on. there was one moment where I think we were talking about his living in L.A. in the 60s and in the 70s. He was dating Linda Ronstadt famously, hanging out with the Eagles and other <laughs> rock bands, uh, being very, you know, cool. And at one point he said, um, did you do drugs, you know, during that period of time? And there was a long pause. And he looked up and he said, I've gotten this far without answering that question. I think I'm going to leave it at that. So he just that was one place he didn't want to go. I, I think I said, I'll take that as a yes. So we're headed into an election year again. And here we have this guy who's got a tremendous amount of political experience, could be really a, a political guru to so many up and coming uh, politicians. Are candidates looking to Jerry Brown for advice? I think, you know, this was kind of the framing of the entire series is even before we started the actual conversations, he would re- keep on saying, you know, no one's asking me or no one's asking me for advice. Um, and that ultimately became kind of the framing for this whole series about sharing the wisdom from his political mind. I notice a gap between what I know and the number of people who are asking me questions about what I know. We kind of took it from there as like, here's how we're going to set this up. Lessons learned and kind of ideas or principles that he took from different parts of his career. Many of them, all of them, I would say, are still applicable to politics going forward. I mean, we talk about the way that Jerry Brown framed himself as an outside candidate to get into government. When we talk about the way he approached the governorship and, and a focus of here, how can I alone make a difference? These are things that you could take politicians going forward and lessons that politicians could take that, you know, really apply to any campaign. I will say that uh, although we weren't recording at the time, we, you know, we, and this is the other thing, we had, we had a lot of conversations with him that were not being recorded just because we were there in his house and we were setting up or we were having lunch, whatever it was. And so he talked about a whole range of things, including the 2020 presidential election. But I think one of the reasons people don't call him for advice is that you get that kind of uh, critique of your questions and it's a heavy lift, you know, to get an answer. So after spending so much time delving inside Jerry Brown's mind, do you think we'll ever have another California politician like him? He is a California original. You know, he is uh, both as an individual, his family history, uh, just the fact that he went off into the seminary and then came back. He had so many lives. I mean, he crashed and burned. People thought when he left office in 1983, that was the end of him. Uh, as, as he said, the voters got tired of me. And quite honestly, I was tired of the voters. He spent a whole, almost a whole decade in the wilderness. And then he came back and left on top. You know, he's now seen as somebody who saved California from financial ruin. Um, it's hard to reenact that. I think he really is a one-of-a-kind figure in California politics and California history. And that's why we wanted to spend so much time with him. And there is that ultimate paradox of, you know, he's seen throughout his career how effective it is to be an outsider, to be the new fresh face, whether he was emerging on the scene in the early 70s or coming back to run for president in the early 90s. But yet he also is 
brought this wealth of experience and learned all these lessons along the way that ultimately helped him be a better governor the second time around. But few politicians get to live that paradox and be the fresh face and also stick around long enough to be the old hand, which and he got to live both of those lives, which is kind of incredible. Producer Guy Marzarati and Scott Schaefer, host of the new podcast, The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank, Thank you, you, Sasha. Their podcast drops this week. And to hear all eight episodes, you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the Bay Area, Scott will be interviewing Jerry Brown live on stage in San Francisco at the Herbs Theater on January 13th. That's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Maleone is our senior editor, and our editorial team also includes Queena Kim, Minnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world. Recognizing, through science, the interdependence of all living systems. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.